You cannot have part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Amen. Uh, I'm not used to these hymnals, but I'm telling you what, the words are phenomenal. And then you get the piano behind it, gives you a little bit of goosebumps, and then when the organ starts strumming in, then you're in heaven. That's just for me. You know, it just, man, it just takes me places to worship that I think it used to be in the olden days, and that really, you know, I don't know. It just, it's just awesome, and I appreciate it. This is a hard scripture that I read this morning, both of them, so I'm not one to back down from a fight, so to speak. Uh, I try to with, live within my limits, so this is going to be a hard one. But nevertheless, this is one on my heart, so I'm just going to go for it, um, which is something I've been taught to do over the years. Four great awakenings have impacted the heart of the American church. 1735 through 1743 was a revitalization of Christian piety, meaning being reverent or a religious person. This would be your Episcopal churches, your, from the Church of England, the Lutheran churches, all the churches we know we would call liturgical churches. It was a call to get them back to their roots, so to speak. The Second Great Awakening happened in 1795 through 1830. The emphasis was on conversion of the individual to what was known as Protestant Christianity. If you've heard of the Church of Christ or the Church of Christ and Christian Union, the Stone Movement, uh, these two guys said the church needed to be one, and they called the church to a, a spirit of, of holiness, so to speak, and they brought the church out to do certain things. So it's an emphasis on conversion of the individual to Protestant Christianity. And then in 1850 to 1900, it was the desire to reach the common man with the gospel, to move from individual social sin to the sin of society, so to speak. And have you heard of come-outism? Come-outism was... Uh, a result of the Holiness Pentecostal movement, which is asking people to come out of their old formal church into a new way of life to separate themselves from the world, in a sense. Out of this movement came the Church of God Cleveland, Church of God Anderson, Nazarene Church, Salvation Army. All these movements were a result of this uh, Third Great Awakening to bring the man from uh, his sin to the sin of society. And I have a little magazine here. This is one of the ladies who was really big in the Third Great Awakening. Her name was Phoebe Palmer, and she uh, did a lot of missionary work in New York City. So she was, she was something else in what she'd done uh, to bring the, from an individual sin to what's going on in society. During this time, there would have been camp meetings and tent meetings going on uh, uh, in the churches to preach the gospel and I don't know if any of you agree with camp meeting. Maybe when you was young, you went to a camp meeting or you had tent revivals. And those days are kind of gone. The old-fashioned camp meetings and tent meetings were gone. But this happened in these uh, Great Awakenings. And then the Fourth Great Awakening was 1960 through 1970 in the growth of what's known as fundamentalism. Now, there may have been a time where you were asked as part of this church, are you a fundamentalist or are you an evangelical? Questions that's asked of people. And it's a very important question. Fundamentalism is a fight against what people considered modernity. In other words, they wanted to fundamentalize the faith. 
a little interpretation of Scripture, salvation alone by Christ, faith alone, and to seek Him alone. And what they were fighting was during this time was evolution. They were teaching that God had made the heavens and the earth in literal days. And there was a fight, is the Bible to be taken literally or metaphorically? And the evangelicals came along and says, we can accommodate both views. You can believe in evolution or you can be, believe in creation as long as it takes us to Christ. And the fundamentalist says you can't, you can't compromise the scripture in that way. And maybe today you see some churches that will say we're a fundamentalist church. This is what we mean. We mean we accept creation. We believe Mary was the actual virgin. We believe that Jesus was the Messiah, that he did rise again from the dead, and that Jesus didn't get married. If many of you know the movie The Da Vinci Code, uh, the Da Vinci Code brought in a lot of what we call false gospels to say maybe Jesus really wasn't the Messiah. But that's what fundamentalism is all about. And then two great guys really came along. One was the Billy Graham, who had multiple crusades, who was able to bring a lot of churches together when he preached the gospel. And then there was a Catholic priest named Carlton Sheen, a fantastic teacher on apologetics and how to defend the faith. These guys were big in the 60s and 70s. And as a result of that, there also came a movement called the Charismatic Movement. How many of you heard about the Charismatic Movement? That's probably a scary movement to a bunch of you. What happened was, in your traditional Lutheran, Methodist, Episcopalian churches, at what we call liturgical churches, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and a lot of them began to speak in tongues, and they started having miracles and stuff. So a lot of churches today are known as charismatic. So they stay within their tradition, whatever it is, but they're a charismatic by, by belief system, and that's all that means, to be a charismatic. So these are all the things that happened in these four great awakenings that has really impacted us in different ways today. But I only want to focus on the first two this morning, since they helped fuel all these revivals. The first two great awakenings really hit Christianity in America hard and really drove us to the places that we're at today and able to fuel the other awakenings. And here's what they said. First, sinners need to be saved and preaching the word is necessary for sinners to know the gospel that saves them. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? Romans 10, 14. The second thing they did was they wanted God's people to be energized again by him. To be called and be stirred up in their spirits. And here's some scriptures for that. Psalms 80, Psalm 85, 119, and Isaiah 57. Here's what they said. Here's the scriptures for that. So not we go back from thee, quicken us, and we will call upon thy name. Turn us again, O Lord God of hosts, cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Wilt thou not revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee? My soul cleaves unto the dust, quicken thou me according to thy word. For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. This preaching of the faith focused more on the individual than it did on the life of the community. It also helped the preacher to speak more spontaneous, emotional, and free rather than a set, formal, educated way. Now, in these great awakenings, in the first one, uh, these preachers were very educated. They knew Greek, they knew Hebrew, they knew Latin. 
They knew apologetics. They knew philosophy. Uh, they were just something else. But they would get up and they would read from the scriptures in a big format, kind of like what I'm doing today. But in the second great awakening, one of these guys just got away from that. He just began to speak from his heart what he believed God was saying to him. So it went from the education aspect of it just to go for it when you preach the gospel. Great men of God preached powerful sermons during this time. Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. How would you like to have that on your sign out there? Next week's sermon for the preacher, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You'll get more calls on that phone than you've ever had in your history. I guarantee it. George Whitfield, who helped uh, make the Methodist movement, he toured colonial America and came uh, all the way up and down the Atlantic coast preaching the gospel. He preached the gospel over 350 times, covering 5,000 miles in one year. Charles Finney, he challenged those who simply accepted the faith of their ancestors. Okay, your grandpa and grandma brought you to church, and you just come right alongside of it. So he went really hard after the people, I guess, so to speak, in the pews, and he began to question them, and he asked them to make the faith their own faith. He wanted to accept Jesus Christ on their own, not just because they was brought up that way, but to, in his mind, have an experience in them. He wanted to revive the people to a living, functioning form of Christianity. He preached against sin and pleaded with the sinner to repent and trust Christ. Now, here's where I'm going with this this whole morning. This guy here is the one who termed and mastered the altar call. He called the altar the anxious bench. He invited the lost man to come to this bench at the front of the room to pray and to be prayed for. This would result in a spiritual and emotional breakthrough for the person praying. The altar call, as I understand it when I was growing up and around churches, and maybe many of you too, has a deep connection to our faith and who we are. In the first century church, early believers worshipped in homes. They didn't have a fancy sanctuary like we have. They were in their houses. And everybody knows when you go to mom's house, at some point you have to get around the kitchen table. She's calling you away from the Thanksgiving football game. She's calling you away from being out there on your cell phone and talking. She's saying, come to the table. What happens at the table? You talk. And men typically don't like to talk because the rabbit starts running around the tree and you want somebody to stop the rabbit from running around the tree so we can move on to the next conversation. Nonetheless, in the kitchen we talk, we're together, we fellowship together, we have a meal together, and we do things together. This is what they did in the first century church. They came to the house and they had a wooden table. All of the service revolved around this wooden table that the people were at. If you read in the epistles of Paul, he would say, greet the house of so-and-so, greet the house of so-and-so, or uh, set these churches up. The churches were in homes. That's where it's happened at. That's where the elders were and the preachers were. They gathered at the homes for worship, and there would be wooden tables there, and that was the center of worship. On this wooden table was placed the communion elements. Their whole service revolved around the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ. As persecution arose, the believers moved from their homes into the tombs. They went to what was known as the tombs of the martyrs. When somebody died for the faith, uh, they buried them in a special place in a cave, and so they began to have services in the cave. Well, in the cave, there was a stone there. They would gather around the stone as they worshiped the Lord, and on the stone, they put a marble top. And at the marble top, they called their altar, they placed the communion elements. 
They honored the one who was sacrificed for Christ, but they worshiped the Lord on this stone and they elaborated this stone and they put the communion there and that's where they celebrated worship. The altar was always associated with communion and the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Eventually, as the church grew and changed over the years, the altar would change as well. First century, they meet in homes. There's a standard table there. All the worship that we do today, in a sense, was done there. They moved out to the caves. Then when the church became accepted and be honored, the altars became real elaborate. Have you heard of icons? Little icons, little pictures of saints who've died in days gone by they would be put on the altars, and many churches still celebrate those kinds of days today. They have what they call feast forms. So the church got real elaborate, the altar got real elaborate, and then in a sense the altar got real plain to what we have today. This is our altar. This is kind of a wooden bench. What do we notice on our altar? We got a cross. We got a couple signs about the goodness of God. We got the light of Christ. And we have uh, the pumpkins here, which uh, kind of celebrates the change of the season. So we have an altar here in which we uh, honor God in our own way. But the altar has changed and its significance has changed over the years. There was a time when altar calls were made every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, and sometimes on Wednesday. It was a very important part of the church and their faith commitment. Nowadays, since everything happens so fast, the altar call has seemed to diminish. This has put many a pastor in a tough spot, including myself. Now, I've been on boards where we've hired pastors. I've had to go to ordination meetings to be a pastor. I've been bought before pastors when I was a pastor in Germany, when I was an associate pastor, when I was a youth pastor, when I was a youth director, fellowship leader. All the things that I've been through, here's two questions that's always asked. What do you believe about the altar call? Do you have altar calls? People may want to be saved, or they may want to rededicate their lives. At the same time, that question's being asked when you're in your interview. You got somebody on the other side that may think, well, altar calls are not needed all the time. Why? The same person seems to come every Sunday to pray. When will they get through whatever pickle they're in? Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, it's the same person praying. Um, those who come to the altar... They pray past the allotted time given for our service. Service is supposed to end at 11.30. Why is that person here praying at 11.31? They should have been done praying by 11.27. So they go past the allotted time. Then, why do you assume that every visitor doesn't know Jesus Christ? Now, I'm Pentecostal. I can't tell you how many times when I was pastoring, I was asked why you didn't have an altar call. I'm preaching to the people of God. Uh, didn't you see that visitor that came in? What, what kind of judgment is am I going to make on a visitor saying they're lost and undone? You didn't gear the service around one person visiting you. You geared the service for the glory of God. That's God's call to do that. Now, I'm not, I'm not making a judgment either way, but do you get what I'm saying? It's always asked. You didn't have it because we had a visitor and maybe they wanted to come and pray. They can come and pray if they want. They can, they can ask me, ask you. Uh, but these things are asked. Don't assume that every visitor is lost. And so you got both camps. So the pastor, um, not wanting to offend either side, is a real smart dude. And he says, altar calls will be offered as the preacher feels led. 
Now, who can argue with that? <laughs> Honestly, how are you going to argue with that? He does it as he feels led. But he don't want to make either side mad. So what is he going to do? Now, this is me included. This has been my history. Uh, every church I've been at. What's he going to do? So he says, well, he does it as he feels God's leading him to do it. Nowadays, though, it is becoming less common and even less desired amongst preachers and some congregations to have altar calls. It kind of infringes on a service, and churches now are called what's called seeker-sensitive, meaning you come however you want, you look however you want, and you sit in the front, people of God, and allow the visitor to come in if he wants to wear a tank top, flip-flop, short shorts, drink a coffee, have some popcorn. We need to be sensitive to that in the house of God because we're trying to reach them. And we can't reach them by preaching a sermon. We reach them by having a play up front. And that's how we minister to them. And that's how we speak. So the churches, a lot of churches, get away from the altar call because they don't, people don't perceive it as love to preach the gospel any other way. So, anyway, however, I want to suggest to you this morning that we do have an altar call once a month as we gather around the communion table. In chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, through chapter 11, verse 1, Paul addresses this very thing in his congregation that he was speaking to. Here's what happened. Some of the people who had come to the faith was eating meat or food that was offered to idols. They were Gentile Christians. Um, they didn't know the Jewish idea of faith. So they come from a way of life, and they accepted Christ and who he is and what he'd done on the cross, but they didn't know maybe they shouldn't be doing these other things. They just didn't know that. So they were meeting, eating meat offered to idols. But there were also Jewish Christians who demanded that these other believers follow the law of God regarding this particular issue. Now Paul's put in a real pinch here. Believers who've accepted Christ, love him, serve him, want to follow him, um, eating meat offered to idols, and maybe doing other things. Jewish people who come to Christ, who see the law of God, their whole life rests on the law of God and living under the law of God, say, hey, these group of people is not doing right, preacher, go fix it. So this is what Paul does. He teaches on this very issue in the following way. First, concern for the welfare of another believer should be the number one rule, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, though we are free, don't use it to hinder others that are in the faith, chapter 9. He says, the church must avoid idolatrous feasts, as seen in the history of the children of Israel. What happened was, you remember when Israel was brought out of bondage, Moses goes, gets the commandments from God. Some people come around and says, uh, your master's been gone a long time, and he's leaving out, you out here to die. You need to go make you a calf, put this calf on this wooden thing, and worship this calf. And let this calf be your God. They did it. God heard it and says, what's this I hear out of my people? And, of course, Moses has to plead on their behalf. Well, you just brought them out of bondage. What would you expect from them? They got to learn and grow on you. He says, you better get back down there to your people uh, because I'm about to, um, I'm going to destroy them for what they're doing. And Moses pleads on their behalf. So he says, you can't do this. He says, these feasts that you are doing are incompatible with the sacredness of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 11, 1. He says the words, everything is permissible, the theme song of Christian freedom. I'm free. I can go where I want. I can do what I want. I can watch what I want. I can eat what I want. 
I can attend any church I want to because I'm free. Do we not live like that? I think we do. I think we live just close enough where we'll make it through the pearly gates. But just on the other side where we know we're not going to be punished for what we're doing. And it has nothing to do with punishment or your rights or my rights. Paul said it has nothing to do with that. Because then he says, everything uh, that I shouldn't be doing this is added. Not everything is beneficial. The theme song of Christian self-control. Just because you have the Christian right, so to speak, to do something, he says, don't mean you should do it. Why? Because you are to be an example to the brothers and sisters around you. And because you have the right to do it, don't mean it's the right example, the good God example. And it might make your brother stumble. Very few Christians in today's church live that way. Everything's about me and my rights. And God loves me and God takes care of me and that's all that matters. Me and him are okay. And we never consider the other brother or sister in the faith that's trying to make their way along in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I was in Korea, I had this friend named Tyrone Ward. We went to a Buddhist temple. And in this Buddhist temple, uh, I saw all this great food in the temple. So I just started eating it. That food was good. A monk come and got me. Now, he couldn't speak English, and I couldn't speak Korean. But he dragged me to, his, to show me how they lived and stuff. And when I went in, he gave me an idol. He gave me a little Buddhist idol in a little box, and I took it, and I thanked him for it. I went back and I put the little idol in my locker. I didn't think nothing of it. I go to church and the preacher calls me in the office. He says, Brother Brian, uh, what are you doing? I'm sitting in your office as far as I know, sir. He said, I heard you ate meat offered to idols and that you have a Buddha in your locker. Yes, sir, I do. And he says, well, you know that caused your other brother to stumble because he says you're not supposed to eat that. I said, Where's that in the Bible? I didn't even think about him. I just saw the food. I was having fun. I was enjoying myself. And he said, but you didn't consider your brother in the Lord. I didn't know the scripture. I, I, I didn't know. But I said, Pastor, I won't do that no more. He called me out right on the carpet and said, it's not what you've done was wrong. You had the freedom to do that. It's that you caused your brother to stumble. And you cause him to lose his faith in Christ because he knew that part of the scripture said we weren't supposed to do it. So after I got out of the meeting and went back to the barracks, I said, Tyrone, what you doing? I said, why'd you rat me out? I said, I didn't know this meat. It was in the Bible. He said, but brother, you ain't supposed to do that. You can make brothers stumble. He was right. He was right for calling me out. The preacher was right for calling me out. And I had no problem with him doing that. Um, because I am supposed to be an example to my brothers and sisters around and what I do or what I don't do. It's never been a matter of right and wrong, I don't think. Paul explains this over and over and over again in Romans, that we're not to make our brother or sister stumble in the faith when they see us doing something that maybe we shouldn't be doing. But it is here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21, Paul uses the word table as an altar. As he says this, as believers, we are called to examine our own lives. Something he did in 2 Corinthians when people questioned his apostleship or his love for God. He says, look at our lives. Question us. Know us. See if we're not living right. At this altar, we see where we stand in our relationship to Christ. At this altar, we as a community of believers come together as one and partake of the body and blood that was shed for us. 
So we've moved from this altar to this is the altar of God. This is where we see our love for him. And this is where he manifests his love and what he has done for us in our lives. And this altar right here has been part of the Christian church since the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Churches change, do they not? Beliefs change over the years, do they not? Your style of worship changes, does it not? The way we dress to come to church changes, does it not? The church will change. Everything changes in life. But one thing has not changed since the foundation of Christianity, and that's the body and blood that was shed on your and my life for us to live and to be in his glory and to serve him and to honor him. So I want to say to you this morning that at this altar, every fourth Sunday, we examine our lives. Are we in the faith? Do we love him? Do we trust him? That's something I don't have to do every Sunday. We do it once a month. And we examine our lives to the life that was sacrificed for us and say, I'm in the faith. I'm walking in you. I'm serving you. And I'm loving you. And I'm grateful for what you've done for me. Worship in terms of music ain't going to change us. Because we put things outside, signs outside ain't going to change. Redoing the church ain't going to thing. Redoing things don't change. You know what changes? Him. He's what changes people. He's what changes us. And he is what makes a difference. So on every fourth Sunday, we do two things. Number one, we remember what he'd done on the old rugged cross. But we also, we present our own bodies a living sacrifice. Isn't that what he calls us to do? I beseech you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is a good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Is it just what God's people do? Don't we live a life that honors him, exalt him, and lifts him up? And once a month we come and we thank him for what he done on our behalf? So... I suggest to you we do have an altar call. We do have a time that we can repent. We do have a time that we can turn to God. Now, I can't answer all the questions about the altar of when some, some feels like they need to come and pray. I, I really can't answer those. I can't say if a visitor is lost or not lost. That's, I can't do that. I can't do this. I can say since the foundation of Christianity, there's been one altar. And it's always focused around the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And you and I come and celebrate that once a month. And Paul says we are to examine our own lives to see where we're at. And to make sure we're not hindering our brother or sister from turning to him. So yes, we do have an altar call. And I said on my first Sunday here, the communion service will be the most important service we will ever do. I don't care if we do it once a month, once a week. But this is where we examine ourselves and we find out where we're at in relationship to him and how much of our lives truly belong to him. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, this is a very, very hard sermon. And I have to examine my own life, Lord, and put myself in check that I, I have to do things that don't hinder a brother or sister from growing in their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have to examine myself, Lord, and this service is the most important service we'll ever do because it's when you died, you showed us your love. 
and your care for us. When you died and rose again and you shed that blood and your body was broken. And this is a time for us to reflect on our own lives. As we receive the body and drink the wine, Lord, to know what you've done. And to see if we're walking in that faith and living that faith out in our own lives. So, Lord, where we need forgiveness as individuals and as a body, forgive us. Touch us, make us and mold us, Lord. And use us for your glory. We want to be your people. We want to follow you. We want to serve you. And we do love you. And we're thankful for what you've done on the cross. Now clear our hearts and our minds this morning, Lord, as we worship you in communion. Lord, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.